You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast with Jill. And this is Jill Weinbanks. I'm an MSNBC contributor, the author of The Watergate Girl, and a wearer of Jill's pins, a hashtag Jill's pins on Twitter. And today's pin is very special for our guest. It is a pin I got when I appeared on The Last Word. Today, we are more fortunate than we always are. We have wonderful guests, but today we have someone who I am particularly looking forward to talking with, Lawrence O'Donnell, host of MSNBC's Last Word, which is why I'm wearing the pin today. I'm sure you know Lawrence from The Last Word, but he is a man of many more talents. In fact, he is a man who seems to have done it all. Before hosting The Last Word, he was an Emmy Award-winning executive producer and writer of The West Wing, as well as a former senior advisor to New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and chief of staff to the Senate Committee on the Environment and Public Works. And that's not all. He also worked with the Senate Finance Committee. He is the author of a book that we're going to talk about today, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. He also has much more in his background that we're going to talk about. So let's get started getting to know the man we see nightly. Yeah, so first, thank you so much for being here, Lawrence. We are really grateful. And um, Jill, as you can saw, as you can see, um, is wearing her pin. And she also sent me a Richard Nixon pin yesterday, which um, I think is quite timely for your book. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, this is great. And that's the first time I've seen a last word pin. I've never seen one. Oh, <laughs> well, can you see it clearly? I hope you can. <laughs> All right. So yeah, let's begin by talking about your book, which is uh, ever so timely. As the title suggests, your book explores both the 1968 election and how it transformed American politics. Um, Before talking about the 1968 election, though, um, which made Richard Nixon president, I think it would be useful for my generation to have you put a historical lens on what happened in 1968 and the lead up to that year. Well, you know, I used to say, and I'm not sure this holds any longer after 2020, that in 1968, uh, any one week of the campaign would have been the biggest news story of any other presidential campaign year. Uh, you know, you, we had uh, a candidate who was on the verge of becoming the front-running candidate assassinated, uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, after he won the California primary. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated a month before that. Uh, The president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, surrendered, just quit on running for re-election as soon as it it started to look tough. Uh, He gave up and uh, and Richard Nixon was creating sort of quietly on the sidelines of all of that uh, action that was so filmable. Uh, there was the first real corporate presidential campaign going on, uh, run by Richard Nixon, designed on you know the corporate principles developed in the 1950s that were kind of taking over uh, business schools at the time, and 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 that was the winning campaign. But it only it won by less than one percent of the vote. And so uh, one of the lessons of uh, of that and other presidential elections is it doesn't matter how much you win by, uh, the era is named after you, uh, even if you win by less than one percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that election gave us uh, much of our modern politics, and Donald Trump uh, lifted a lot from Richard Nixon, including the phrase uh, law and order, which was used as a campaign slogan by Richard Nixon. He had stolen it from the segregationist Alabama Governor George Wallace, who began the 1960s saying things like segregation now, segregation forever. And once that became literally illegal, um, he shifted that whole concept into two words, 
law and order. And everyone knew what he meant. Everyone knew exactly what he meant. And uh, it was a it was a anti-civil rights chant, basically. Uh, and and that's one of the things that's different about uh, what happened during the Trump period was uh, Donald Trump was actually saying things out loud that George Wallace never dreamed you could say. Uh, uh, you know, he he thought the dialogue was moving in just one direction where you had to veil uh, what you were really about. And, uh, you know, the real, the real turning point when you look at it historically of the 1968 election was 1965. And that is when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And he was a Southern Senator, formerly a segregationist himself, and certainly understood all of the segregationists, liked them and worked with them very well. And he said privately when he signed those bills, um, this means we've lost the South for a generation because the Democrats used to win the South. You know, the, the, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, they used to send Democrats to the United States Senate and they used to vote for Democrats for president. Uh, but Johnson believed by the Democratic Party becoming the Civil Rights Party with the passage of those bills and the signing of those bills, that he would that the Democrats would lose the South for a generation. He was he was wrong. Uh, they lost the South for the rest of the century and and more. Uh, and where you're just you know that Georgia win in January was so hugely significant historically because it it is the moment when it appears at least that state uh, can now turn back to the Democrats but only thanks to large demographic shifts in their, in their voting population. And, and so uh, the, the, the Republican party without ever having to say it out loud in 1968 became the anti-civil rights party the, and the anti-progress party on all fronts because the year began with three viable candidates, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York. And Romney and Rockefeller were considered, it's a phrase that, uh, you know, listeners uh, under a certain age have either never heard or they've never seen the concept, liberal Republicans. They were called liberal Republicans. And that's because Romney was in favor of civil rights and supported Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, Nelson Rockefeller did too. Uh, and Nixon did not. He, he never said anything against Martin Luther King. He just never said anything supportive. And that's all you had to do. And so the Republican Party in the primaries chose their dark side as represented by Richard Nixon. And they've never looked on the, on the lighter side of their party again. And now, uh, liberal Republican has become an extinct species in our politics. And we had them, by the way, as recently as the 1990s in the United States Senate. Uh, John Chafee, Republican senator from Rhode Island, was a liberal Republican. He was pro-choice. You know, he was a very strong uh, environmentalist. And, and it's as recently as that, that uh, the Republican Party finally extinguished its last flicker of liberalism in the party. Well, you know, th this has been fascinating to hear, especially at my age and kind of comparing it then. But, you know, when you were a teenager during that time, having experienced the 2020 election as well as that election is, you know, has your view changed at all? Or like, did you base your book on any recollection that you had about that time period and your experience during that time period? Yeah, I mean, you know, I actually wrote the book from memory, you know, meaning wow, there's a lot that I didn't know, but I knew the entire sequence in my head. You know, and so in, in my outline, you know, um, you know, Robert Kennedy gets assassinated was one sentence and in the book, it's a chapter. And so I, I had to fill out a lot of research. I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't know, for example, the month before, I didn't know where he was when Martin Luther King Jr. got assassinated. It turns out he was in Indiana on his way to Indianapolis to campaign. And he had to announce to his campaign audience that Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. And his campaign audience was virtually an all black audience uh, in the city of Indianapolis. And they were hearing it for the first time because believe it or not, 
not every people did not have telephones in their pockets and news producing devices in their pockets. And so if you were out of your home and you did not have a radio on, uh, there was no way for you to know any news at all, zero, none about anything, including anyone in your family. I know this is a shocking concept. And so, you know, that kind of moment could occur. You know, you can see right now in the 21st century, that moment could never occur. You know, it wouldn't be possible for you to tell an assembled crowd news that they didn't already know if it was important, you know, from their phones. Uh, so I, I had to fill in all sorts of research and I discovered all sorts of backstage moments that I didn't know about at all, especially at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, which I watched on TV with, with rioting broke out in, in ways that we'd never seen before at a political convention, including, you know, many versions of riots inside the convention hall. And I knew what had been on TV, but I had to fill in a lot of research about what, what, what the TV cameras didn't catch. But it was writing history from a perspective of having seen it myself. Um, and so I knew the sequence before I started writing the book. I knew, um, I, I didn't know exactly how each candidate made the decision to get in the race, but I knew when they did. I knew who went first and who went second. And I knew the bitternesses that the different campaigns felt for each other because I was aware of them. You know, as just as a teenager in Boston, uh, it was alive with all of that uh kind of feeling and and that news flow was very intense and so um it 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 was a work of history including a lot of historical research obtaining facts that i didn't know about but it was primarily as as kind of an outlined piece of writing it was kind of outlined from memory well that is impeccable memory and i suspect you know maybe 40 years from now, we will have a book about this era as well. Um, well no, sure. And I promise you, someone who's in who's 14 years old today or 15, you know, and was 14 years old at the last <laughs> presidential impeachment will be able to describe to you 20 years from now, the fall of 2020, you know, in their heads. They go, well, you know, it started with this impeachment trial in the Senate because there was this little delay with the speaker sending the articles over. And then you know, when the trial was going on, we started to get this word about a pandemic, and I'd never heard that <laughs> word before. And then, you know, and and the and the presidential campaign, Biden, you know, had collapsed in New Hampshire and Iowa, and it was all over. He was the front runner. We had no idea who was going to emerge. And then, you know, the pandemic hit, and then Biden suddenly in his I mean, you can right. as soon as you start that, you could finish that. You could, mm -hmm. it's, it's in your brain and it's there for a very long time. I promise yeah. you for at least 50 years. That's my experience. Lawrence, <laughs> I can tell you that Victor is only now 18. He was 17 during the campaign and he has a photographic memory that I know will not fade yeah. and he'll be able to tell his children and maybe write a book about everything he witnessed this year and last year. Well, there, I mean, Jill, there is this funny thing about memory, right? Which is that uh, my memories formed at 14 of 1968 are much clearer than any memory I have of, say, you know, the 1992 presidential campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, no, that's an older brain that's forming and trying to hold those memories. And those memories are in competition with others. And so, you know, I think, you know, 20 year olds, their, their recall of 2020 is going to be fabulous for a very long time. Interesting. Oh, Although yeah. I will say that when I started writing my book, I did what you did. I wrote an outline from memory. And then I started going on Google, something that, of course, didn't exist at the time uh, of Watergate. And like you, I found out, for example, about the Saturday Night Massacre by a phone call because I was not in Washington. I was in New York at a wedding and I had no way of knowing what had happened because there was no phone. And when Rosemary Woods failed to replicate her supposed error, error in the courtroom, the press had to file out of the courtroom to a bank of payphones because there was no other way to call in the story. So it is, it's so different now, uh, but turned out that my memory was very accurate. I was, of course, older than 14 or 15, but 
the event was so vivid that you don't forget it. And I think right. double impeachment is one of those that everyone, no matter what their age, will remember in the same way they do 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's definitely a great point. Um, you know, so going back to the 1968 election, um, you know, you spoke about this earlier, but you know, it was an unprecedented year from the Vietnam War to the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, to the Chicago DNC convention, and then uh, the result, which was the trial of the Chicago Seven. How did those moments alter the dynamics of the election? Because we, you know, for my generation, we think of 2020, and you know, there were so many things that altered the dynamics. But how did things work back then? Um, and how did those events change um, how the election worked? Well, you know, the truth of this stuff is that we don't know when we are, as pundits, guessing in real time. You know, in the middle of a campaign, X happens, and we all say, oh, that's going to hurt that candidate, or it's going to help them. I mean, I tend to avoid saying that because I know that we're guessing. And when I do say it, I try to label it as a guess mm. that can be wrong. And history doesn't really improve our understanding of that very much. Um, for example, uh, one of the conventional wisdoms of 1968, political wisdoms strongly held by Richard Nixon, was that the rioting at the Democratic convention uh, just destroyed the Democrats' possibility of winning the presidency. Uh, Nixon was watching it you know, uh, on television from uh, Florida and just was so, he was speechlessly delighted by what he was seeing uh, because he believed the horrors that were on TV would turn people away uh, from whoever was involved in that convention. In the end, you know, Nixon wins by less than 1% of the vote and you know, there's the, the momentum theory is that if Hubert Humphrey had had literally one more day of campaigning, the momentum, those, those lines would have crossed because hmm. Humphrey, who was the eventual Democratic nominee, was playing a catch-up game against Nixon from the convention onward. Uh, he had less money, you know, uh, all this stuff. And if, if the convention was so decisive, why wasn't it a decisive victory? And and so you can't really you can't really say you know what what turned what. I mean, my personal hypothetical is that probably uh, you know the single most important thing that happened in the whole campaign was uh, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy uh, in a hotel ballroom immediately after giving his victory speech in the California primary because I can definitely draw a line from there to the White House for Bobby Kennedy. Mm -hmm. If Bobby Kennedy had lived, if he, he, his chance of going on and winning that nomination was very strong. His chance of beating Richard Nixon was very clear. Um, and so I suspect that's the biggest variable that happened in the whole thing, you know, and that has not, you don't have to go to exit polls for that. You don't have to, you don't have to learn any, you know, so-called political science for that to analyze that. Uh, and so that was probably the single biggest outcome uh, changer in, in the entire campaign was the assassination of the candidate who probably would have been president. Yeah. And, and you offer those questions also at the end of your book, like what would have happened if, you know, Bobby Kennedy wasn't assassinated or Martin Luther King, you know, uh, wasn't assassinated. And I think those are just fascinating questions to think over and because um, each one of them could have altered the course of history. Um, another thing that you mentioned in your book is how Nixon worked with Roger Ailes um, and campaigned in a very different way than we had previously seen. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, Roger Ailes uh, was his very first involvement in politics, and um, he had been a talk show producer, just, you know, one of those shows where movie stars and comedians come on, you know, and sit around the sofa and talk to the host. Mm -hmm. uh, guy the host was a guy named Mike Douglas, who I'm reluctant to mention because he's been lost to history, and <laughs> but Jill and I will remember him. Yes. But, um, and so, um, so Ailes was in show business, and then... Uh, Nixon, you know, thought, met him and thought he knows something about politics and television. Uh, I need help with television. He brought him in. And Ailes created, 
you know, television commercials that we'd never seen before. They were by far the best. And he had a difficult subject because Nixon was an incredibly stiff and boring guy. Uh, whenever you had the camera at him, he got stiffer, right? And so <laughs> what they did was they created these fake town hall situations that looked like Richard Nixon answering questions in a New Hampshire barn, you know, uh, <laughs> And it turns out those are all hired people in there being paid to ask those questions. And they had all these cameras set up, you know, like a like a movie shoot so that you could create this sensation that seemed really live and dynamic. And um, and it gave a kind of life to Nixon TV ads that we'd never seen before. And so uh, Roger Ailes had more effect on pres on political campaigning in America than any other campaign operative who's ever been in the field. He hmm. changed uh, the approach to TV. He changed the approach to communication generally for political campaigns. Yeah. And speaking of political campaigns, this is something that you mentioned in your book, but how do you think 1968 compares to the 2016 and 2020 elections? Like, do you think the 2016 and 2020 elections altered the way that campaigns were run in the same way that 1968 um, altered things? No, it, there's only one campaign that got altered in, in 2016 or 2020, and that's the Trump campaign. And what the, the new thing was, you can run a lunatic for president and uh, it can work. And nobody knew that, you know, which is why no uh, real political operatives went to work on the Trump campaign. They were all working on the serious campaigns, you know, that could yeah. win. Jeb Bush and, you know, the, the other players who were on the field there, you know, Marco Rubio, those kinds of campaigns that they no no campaign professional went near uh, the Trump campaign. I mean, Kellyanne Conway is a, a, a minor character in that world who never had a serious job in a serious presidential campaign. And so it was this ragtag group of, you know, losers who couldn't be hired by the real world of politics. And it turned out there were enough voters to fall for the Trump Act, and nobody knew that. And the people running the campaign didn't know it. Donald Trump didn't know it. It was it was a discovery. You know, it was kind of a, a spontaneous discovery in the lab. You know, we put this thing in the lab, and you know, the voters, the, a, a, a stunning number of voters responded to it, and um, and that's how you got it. You know, so it it wasn't. Uh, no one deserves credit for that. It wasn't like, oh, what a brilliant stroke, you know, uh, who was the Wizard of Oz who decided this guy should run? It's just, it's, you know, it's one of those things. And um, I think everyone discovered something about collective intelligence in America. And we were, we were all rating it higher uh, than it should have been rated. And it turns out there's a massive uh, pandemic level of stupidity in the United States. Uh, that expressed itself in votes for Donald Trump. Not not all Trump voters, okay? So let me just stress that there were rational policy reasons for voting for Donald Trump. If the Southern border was the, your biggest worry in the world, okay, I understand why you would choose him. If you believe abortion is murder, I understand why you always vote for Republicans, no matter how much you don't like them. And I know some voters who voted for Trump who really dislike him, think he's a fool, a fraud, a liar, but they believe abortion is murder. And so they believe he's the only way they could vote because he's going to appoint judges who believe that also. Um, and so that's a rational you know, vote on a policy level. Or if you just think all I care about is cutting my taxes and I'm really rich, that's also rational. But, you know, that's a, that's a small sliver. That, everything I just described, that doesn't represent more than, you know, 9, 10% of the Trump vote. And the rest of it is simply, you know, uh, deranged. You know, they are simply people who cannot separate fact and fiction. They believed Mexico was going to pay for a wall. They believe in Superman. They believe he wins the election when he loses the election. So those are people you can't help and can't reach and it's and it's not that there's no form of political communication you know that can get through to them it, it's you know a lot of them are gonna you're they're gonna the people who are gonna get through to them are the judges who sentence them for invading the capital hmm. and that a bunch of them are gonna wake up in that process a bunch but that's what it took 
Uh, so they were beyond the reach of politics. What you're saying is so interesting. Your perspective is fascinating. And your book is amazing in how it recreates 1968, which I was um, a law student at the time. So I have vivid memories of it. I graduated the day that Bobby Kennedy, well, in the, the day after, and he was assassinated early in the morning for me. Um, and I graduated that day. So it's forever seared in my memory. Um, but I, I want to talk a little more about what you're talking about with the media of television, which was very new back then as a way of communicating. And you've described what happened with the advertising and Roger Ailes. But let's talk a little bit about the fact that back then there were really only three networks. And that's where most people got their news was NBC, ABC, CBS. And now we have come to a totally different media landscape. Uh, Roger Zales, of course, played a very significant role in changing that because you now have Fox and Breitbart, OAN, and so many others that people are living in silos. And from your perspective, do you think that um, his use of the media as basically a profit-driven uh, business has changed even the the legitimate mainstream media networks? And is that dangerous um, if we're running news organizations on that model? Well, it hasn't changed the mainstream news media, but, you know, Rupert Murdoch's Fox channel, I refuse to call it by the name it claims because they put a lie right beside the word Fox, you know? Uh, they're not in the news business. That's not what they are. So, um, you know, it's like calling it, you know, uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta News. It's that's not <laughs> that is that's just a, a gimmick you've come up with, you know, to get to get viewers. And so, and that's all Murdoch was involved in from the start. He saw that Rush Limbaugh had a massive radio audience, massive, like nothing close to it. And he saw how low the, you know, how small the TV audience is for cable news. And it is, it, at that time, was relatively small. And now it's actually, it hasn't gotten much bigger. But what's happened is the big networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, have all collapsed in the ratings. You know, a, a hit show like The West Wing used to have, you know, not unusual to have 20 million people, 25 million people watching an episode. Uh, now there's no show on television that can get that kind of audience. And so you're, you're a big hit on a network like NBC if you get like 5 million viewers now. And so, um, you know, the, the cable news audience was much smaller. And he thought, Murdoch thought, if I can just get, you know, 10% of the Limbaugh radio audience, then I've got a, I've got a good business here. And that's what he went after. And he got more than 10%. And that's all it is. You know, it's, 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 no one, no one says the Rush Limbaugh news show. Well, Fox is the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, same model. And it's, uh, it's been, it's turns out, it's been an incredibly damaging uh, thing because it seems pretty clear that if those kind, if that kind of media, if there was a Fox channel, uh, in 1974, you know, Jill, I, I don't know if Richard Nixon would have had to resign the presidency. I, I, I don't think he would have. Um, uh, so, so imagine, imagine, all you have to do is just close your eyes and imagine there's no Fox when Donald Trump is impeached, you know, the first time. Like, would he have survived that that exposure? And I don't think he would. And so, you know, Fox and its imitators basically have uh, poisoned a very significant portion of the public mind. And, uh, you know, a, a solid 40% of the public mind has been poisoned by this. And they are, you know, in terms of their citizenship, dysfunctional because they cannot separate fact from fiction, which is the first chore of a citizen in deciding how to vote. I agree with you completely. And I think that if there had been a Fox, Richard Nixon would not have had to resign. 
But so that takes us to the question of how do we overcome this polarization that has resulted from the silos that we now live in? You choose the news you want to hear. And if you listen to Fox and you listen to MSNBC, you hear two very different sets of information. I believe MSNBC has the facts, the truth, but the people who listen to Fox believe that of what they're hearing. How do we get people to, as you've just said, no fact from fiction so that they can vote based on truth? Um, I don't think it's possible on a, you know, I don't think you can do that for 100% of the class. You know, um, it turns out that American citizenship, you know, 2021 is a much more complex course than it was in 1921, you know, when, you know, uh, nuclear weapons didn't exist and Medicare didn't exist and Social Security didn't exist. I mean, Medicare Part B, okay, just Medicare Part B alone is more complex than anything the federal government ever undertook prior to World War II. So throw away all of the kinds of consensus that was possible in America back when government was this astonishingly simple thing compared to what it is now. And there's no voter out there who understands Medicare Part A, Medicare Part B, Medicare Part D. They, they, they don't, the, the people on Medicare don't entirely understand it, okay? And so they are voting on issues that are literally beyond their comprehension. And by the way, in, including mine, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not the scientist I would have to be to have the opinions I would need to have on all of the governing issues in front of us. And so at a certain point, I'm casting a vote, you know, that's based on a belief about, about an issue, not a, a real competence in it. And, um, and so, um, you know, we, we're not going to be able to get everyone or 90% or 80% or 70% to understand it. I mean, the thing that I always ask when people talk about unity or, you know, bring the country together, I always want to know what's the percentage? What, what's the percentage of the country is together? Does it have to be 100? Does it, is it 90? Is it 80? Because it's never been that number ever, ever, ever in its history ever. It's never been 80% agreement on this country. And Joe Biden used a very important phrase twice in his inaugural address. And it really jumped out at me because it's really what someone with governing experience really understands. And especially someone with governing experience in the Senate where there are very few, you know, 100 to nothing votes or, you know, 98 to two votes. Uh, and he said repeatedly in that inaugural address, enough of us, enough of us have come together. And enough of us is 55%, it, which is what Joe Biden's approval number is right now. That's what his job approval is, 55, 56%, 10 points higher than Donald Trump ever got, ever. Mm -hmm. And that always was considered, you know, it, it used to not be considered that good, you know, for a president. We used to have presidential approval ratings that went up over 60 during the easy times of a presidency. Um, but if, you know, 55% is kind of a, that's what we're talking about. And can you achieve that? Yes, you can achieve it. And the problem with the, the American uh, shockingly flawed democracy is that 55% already agree, but that's not enough to govern because they made the deliberately anti-democratic choice of assigning two senators to every state. And so, you know, I personally don't use the word democracy when we're talking about, you know, these phrases like our democracy was at risk. I kind of go, well, you know, they gave that up in the founding when they said two senators per state, and they said, we're gonna use that formula of two senators per state to create this thing we call the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. So um, if you took away the Electoral College and the two senators per, per state thing, we wouldn't be having this, you know, unity discussion thing because, you know, basically 55% of the federal government would be democratic, you know, and, um, and that would be, as Joe Biden puts it, enough. Well, I, I think that you probably rely on better sources to get your information to vote. You don't have to be a scientist, but you have to listen 
to the scientists. I'm sure you do, but I want to transition to a more lighthearted part of our discussion because I think you are one of the most fascinating people around. Uh, before you were a TV host um, for news shows, you were very successful in television with West Wing, one of my favorite series ever. You wrote episodes for them. You were a story editor, a producer. And I know you've stayed in touch with the cast because you brought them to Politicon, where I was thrilled to meet them. And so I want to talk about some of your background in television in a nonfiction uh, or in a fiction uh, series. Can you talk about that and how you got involved um, in doing something like that? What was your experience that led you to do that? Well, the, the odd thing about my life is that the, I have a, different chapters and they're unrelated and, and, and they're long enough that people think I was just that one thing. So, so when I went from working in the Senate to uh, Los Angeles and writing drama television like The West Wing, people used to say to me, how did you go from politics and government to you know, TV writing? And I said, well, I was doing that before. I was doing that before I went into politics and government, but you know, uh, these chapters were so long, no one remembered that. And so I just, I started off as a writer. The very first thing I did was write a book about uh, police use of deadly force uh, back in the 1980s when no one cared about it and was paying attention to it. And, um, and that book, it was a, based on, it was centered on one true story about that, uh, shooting of a black man in Boston by the Boston police. And we turned that book into a TV movie. And so then I was in show business writing for years. And then in 1988, we had a Writers Guild strike uh, in show business that lasted for six months. And Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York invited me then into his reelection campaign. Uh, he had been a Harvard professor when I was there and I knew him, but I had nothing to do with politics and I had no... I had no real interest in it since the Vietnam War. I mean, my interest in politics was end the Vietnam War, you know, as a high school kid. And then when they ended it eventually, um, I, it wasn't anything else that interested me. I, I didn't care about taxes or anything else. And so I had no interest in it at all. Um, but when Senator Boynihan invited me into his reelection campaign, I was, of course, desperately available because my, my guild was on strike. And... Um, and I thought, well, this would be interesting. It, it could, I might find something to write about. I might find, you know, a, a nice, a, a screenplay in this world hanging around this campaign. And so I went into it in the, you know, most, you know, just the kind of, he didn't need me, you know, he's gonna win with 67% of the vote, whether I was there or not, you know, that's the way he won in New York. And um, so I did that. And then he asked me to join the Senate staff. And I just thought that's outrageous. I, I am not the person for this. And, but I, I did it anyway because he was such a compelling character and I was in his uh, kind of mesmeric spell. And, um, and so that ended up being about, I don't know, seven, eight, seven years, eight years in the Senate. And uh, I ended up running two committees in a row and uh, doing really big stuff. And, um, and, being, get, being in the White House a lot during the Clinton period in the Oval Office with the president and real governing decisions about major legislation in the cabinet room with sometimes with a bunch of senators and, and the president. Uh, and so I got, you know, I had this, got this incredible experience and, and it was like a, oh my God, it was something beyond a graduate level Harvard seminar with Professor Moynihan as my guide every day through governing in America. You know, and then I leave that and Aaron Sorkin has just got his pilot picked up, you know, uh, this thing he's calling the West Wing at NBC and he needs writers uh, to do more episodes after the pilot. And I meet with Aaron and, you know, hires me right away. And, and so it um, and by the way, I, I would not have been necessarily even on the list for that show uh, if I hadn't picked up that Washington experience. You know, I would have been more, I would have been more likely to be a, a law and order writer, something like that, because I had a lot more experience with cops and lawyers and stuff uh, prior to government. Um, but then I was the only one in the writer's room who'd ever actually been in the Oval Office. Uh, and so, uh, 
that that was uh, just a wonderful place to be, and I wish I was still there. I mean, that was that was the most fun by far. I mean, absolutely the most fun I, I've ever had. And you know, I at the same time I was doing MSNBC hits, Jill. You know, as a guest, you know, and mm -hmm. and uh, and I'd, I'd literally I'd get out of the I'd walk out of the writers' room meeting that was still going on. You know the three-hour writers' meeting on Warner on the Warner Brothers lot, and I'd get in my car and I'd go over, you know, four minutes away to the NBC studio, where I would do a hit on MSNBC, for with you know some show for five minutes, get back in the car, come back, and I'd be gone like a total of twenty minutes, which you don't really notice in those big <laughs> writers' meetings, and uh, and no one would know what I had just done, and. Uh, Eventually, I started doing for fun, you know, substitute hosting the shows, you know, like they didn't ask me, can you substitute host this show? I go, yeah, sure. I don't have any idea how to do it, but that sounds like a fun thing to try to play around with. And, uh, and I did that and I never asked for anything there. I never asked for more. I didn't expect to do it for very long. Um, and uh, and it ended up being the thing I ended up end up doing the longest, uh, which really surprises me more than anything. Well, and it's because you do such a good job of it. But let's also you had um, a role in front of the camera as well. You played uh, President Bartlett's father in a flashback episode. And yeah. so, what was it like to do that? Well, that was my first time working as a professional actor. And it's just one of those things, you know, like once a year, Hollywood would run out of actors and I would get the call. Uh, you know, we tried to cast uh, a few people in that role, including our first choice was Mark Harmon and we couldn't get him. We got him later to play a secret service agent, but we couldn't get him because of scheduling at the time. It was, that role had, it had to be shot partially exterior Washington, DC and the rest of it on the lot, uh, Warner Brothers interiors, and it was spread out over two weeks. It was very hard to schedule for a, an actor in demand. And I think I got a call from the director uh, saying, you know, if the next guy turns this down, they went to four, four actors before me. If the next one turns this down, we need you to fly to Washington tonight uh, to do this tomorrow uh, on, you know, the first shot is tomorrow. Um, and, and the reason that happened is because we would have what they call a read through of the script, um, for every episode. And we used to do it in our, uh, Roosevelt room on our set, which was the best read through spot I've ever had for a TV show. And you have all of your regular cast there reading their parts, but some of the guest roles have not been cast yet. And so they're not there. And so writers read the, you know, these different roles. And so Aaron asked me to read that role of the father. And I said, okay, and I read that. And the director saw that and said to Aaron, that's exactly what we want. He didn't mean me, he meant whatever it was they saw me doing. And I don't know what that is, okay? Cause it's mysterious stuff, but acting is a mystery to me. And, um, and Aaron and the director, Tommy, agreed that's what they wanted in that part. They went out to try to get it from a professional actor. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then it fell to me. And, and, and so, you know, ever since then, um, I, casting directors, friends of mine saw that and they went, oh, he can do that. Okay. And so I would get a call, you know, once a year, you know, can you play the judge in Monk? You know, and I'd go, yeah, sure. And I go over, I'd spend a day with Tony Shalhoub and sit there in the judges chair. It was so much fun. And, um, you know, it, it just, uh, I was always getting, it was always a lawyer or a judge. That's what it always was, you know, middle-aged white man, lawyer. <laughs> and, you know, and, no, but let's mention you also were in Big Love and Homeland as an actor. And, which, and Big, Big Love was, was funny because that was, that one was un, unusual because that was a pilot. They were trying to find the lawyer for Big Love, uh, basically Bill Paxton's lawyer for the pilot. And, and the casting directors used to work for me on another show and they begged me, can you, because every one they brought in, the director didn't want. And that happens sometimes. And I'm sure there was someone in there who was perfectly fine. And then I walk in there, I'm the last person to walk in there because they, you know, 
And, and at that point, the director is going to say yes to whoever that is. Uh, but because it was a pilot, what you didn't know is, is this role going to come back in the series? It turns out it was like, you know, <laughs> I was in like half of the episodes over, you know, six years or something, you know. And so the big love residuals are like the biggest thing in my mailbox these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a good job, obviously. And do you think that all of these varied experiences, uh, both on the production side, the writing side, the acting side, have influenced how you approach hosting the last word? No, because I, uh, I mean, they, it did at first in, in certain ways that are microscopic, meaning I care about every single thing in the frame, you know, like when I, when you're, you know, because that's what filmmaking is and, you know, and show like the West when you can do eight takes or you can do 14 takes, you can do whatever it takes, whatever's necessary to get it perfect. And then when you get that film into the editing room, you color correct it and you lay in the music and you, and you decide exactly where it cut. And everything is about getting to perfection and you get as close to perfection as you can get, you know, within that episode. And then you put it on the air, you know, and there's a couple of little tiny hairs out of place in it in, that only you know about. And the audience never sees it because you really got as close to perfection as you can get. And so I had that, that was my only TV sensibility, which is utterly useless in you know, live TV news format, you know, because I mean, I'm looking, I, I spent time, I remember 10 years ago when this thing was being created on, what is the font that we're using for these letters, the last word, let me see. And what color are we using and how long? And they couldn't believe it. Like the people who were dealing with me on that had never before met, you know, an anchor of one of these shows because they've never asked, you know, what should the what should the background color be? What should be in the background? What should, should there be movement? Should it be, what should it be? Should it be abstract? You know, all that stuff. So I was like, you know, obsessively interested in that stuff. And, um, and to this day, you know, when you see video on my show, I will 99% of the time, I will have cut precisely where that frame begins and hmm. precisely where it ends. Like, and the big lesson I had to teach, which I think has finally sunk in, is that um, if there's crowd reaction after he or she says that, keep it, you know, and what they always do in that business is, you know, uh, the politician says X and the crowd cheers, but, and they cut as soon as you've heard the words, they don't understand. And it's like, no, no, no. And I will say to them, no, 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 make it, make sure you see him walk off the stage, the whole thing. Like, and so I'm telling them precisely where the frame is uh, that you're cutting and nobody else, nobody else does that, you know? And, and by the way, uh, how much difference does that make? I don't think any that the audience, you know, could could care about. So it's like I bring inapplicable experience <laughs> to the anchor thing, and I to this day do not know what I'm doing. I do not know why. I don't know what's on that screen when it, when it's me on that screen talking. I don't know what it is. And, and, if, and if, I, if this was a fictional episode that I had written and I was watching Allison Janney do my lines and Martin Sheen or Alan Alda do my lines, um, I would have no ego investment in how good this scene is based on the fact that I'd read it. You know, I could look at it completely, I mean, written, I could look at it with utter professionalism and say, this is what we want, this is how we want to do this. And the great thing about those actors and all, all of the actors I worked with is they always made whatever I wrote better, and I mean much better. So um, I, could, I knew why it worked. If you told me, oh, I loved that moment, I know I, I, what I'm saying inside my head is, I know why you did. I know exactly why you did. That was, that's the way I, I wrote it for you to feel that. And then, you know, she did that for you to feel that. I have no concept of what's going on between me and the audience on cable news. I, I have no idea what they're watching, what they're taking in, what they like, why they like it. I, I, I don't know. And I, I just know that it's like, 
as and this is true of everybody who you see in the TV box, it is not just one dimensional. In a way, it's less than one dimensional. You know, you're getting less than one dimension of that person. And yet people make big projections about liking them or hating them or, you know, based on this little tiny window on who they are. And all I can tell you is it's, it's, it's not untrue, like that, what you're seeing is truly that person, but it's not who they are. Who they are is something so much bigger than that kind of TV can ever capture. And so what you're going for in filmmaking with actors is you're going for the bigger thing. You're going for the, you know, this is gonna work because the audience knows who she is by now. And they're gonna feel this the way she feels it because they know who she is. Um, and so you're counting on that. You're counting on that multi-dimensional knowledge of the character that the audience can bring into drama. Um, but on the news thing, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm shocked that it's this thing still going on for in, in its 10th year. I mean, I signed a three-year contract at the beginning. I thought it would last about 18 months. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I don't get it, uh, but uh, the audience has its relationship to it. And it's, it's kind of a mystery to me. And I don't, I try not to think about it because I don't, I don't really have a theory about the audience well, connection to it. It's definitely working. People obviously adore you. You're in their homes every night. And uh, so it's definitely working. And I, I hope we'll have time for at least one more question from Victor. I know he'd like to ask you something about um, advice. Yeah, so I think just reading, and actually before I ask you for advice, I just want to say um, I started West Wing during uh, this whole COVID time, and it's a daunting show, but it's a perfect show for uh, COVID in this time because you just like watch it, and for any political junkie, it's like you watch straight through it. I don't think I realized how good the show was until I actually started and specifically saw CJ, who is by far my favorite character. <laughs> well, you know, she's as great an actress uh as has lived, uh, yeah. just, I mean, to be able to hand your script to Allison Janney is, oh, it's just, I, I wish that for everyone who's ever written for performance. Uh, yeah, um, so, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, for, for you, I think one through line with your career is that it isn't linear, um, but for many in my generation, I wouldn't say that we're risk averse, but many of, kind of the people who I know tend to think of careers and linear paths. Um, that is, you know, you start to school, you may go to law school, work as an associate, um, get a couple of promotions along the way. What advice would you have to my, or what advice would you give my generation about, you know, being able to take risks, about uh, willingness to change careers, not just jobs, and how that's benefited you? Well, so I'm lucky, right? So my story is a story of luck and I don't know how to give advice at all. And I, I wouldn't presume to. Um, I think uh, risk now scares me in a way that it didn't scare me when I was 25. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was coming out of the hippie generation of, you know, we were all gonna just, you know, be good people and we didn't really care what we did occupationally and all that stuff. And, um, and so I never expected to have a job. I never expected to have a, an office or an employer or a place I had to go. And the first thing I did, you know, was sit down and say, I'm going to write this book. Uh, I didn't know how to write a book. Um, and, but that didn't stop me. And so that was incredibly risky behavior. And I think now that if I, as a parent were watching myself, I'd be worried about that guy. And I would have been worried about that guy, like, I don't know, until, you know, until maybe until he went to work in the Senate, because that was my first job. That was the first time I had an actual job. I was just a freelance, you know, iceberg floating down that river, uh, making, you know, $120,000 one year as a writer and $5,000 the next year as a writer. And always in my brain having my bankruptcy plan in mind, you know, and I always knew where I was going to move to when I couldn't afford this apartment or, 
you know, and even, you know, it, it was much longer than that. I mean, even after the West Wing and after the West Wing had bought me a house in LA, uh, I was still in, in effect living a freelance life, uh, especially when the West Wing closed down. And you, you, you know, you have this year's paycheck, but you don't really know where next year's paycheck is coming from. And even at that point, I always used to know exactly what lower priced neighborhood I was gonna to move to next in LA after I was forced to sell my house. And when I say that, it's not, it, that happens to most people in show business, including most people who get to work as uh, TV writers for a significant period of time. Uh, eventually, it's a, lo it's a lot like an, an athletic income, okay? The NFL, you know, average years of income is, I don't know, three years or something like that, right? Uh, Tom Brady's an exception. But even for Tom Brady, at some point he's going to be 50, right? And he's going to have he's going to have another 40 years of life in front of him with none of that quarterback income. And I'm sure he's going to be okay. But um, in show business, that's everyone. At some point, they're not going to need you anymore. You know, as an actor, as a director, as a writer, it's very ageist. There's very, very, very few people who stay employed uh, in show business above the age of 50. Very few, in any category. And then above 60, you can just look at those numbers. They just go straight down. So, I mean, I know people who've had to go from, you know, very rich lifestyles, downgrade over time. It's, it's normal. And, and so it's, in other words, it's risky. And that's why your mother wants you to be a dentist, because it's not risky. And it's not, it's good hours. You know, you're going to be home at a reasonable time. And so dentist is the model for stability and everything else is a variation on that into more and more and more risk. And, and I lived out there in the extreme risk zone, really, I mean, my whole life. And, uh, and I don't recommend it. It's a thing you, um, you can either stomach or you can't. You cannot be a materialistic person. You know, you have to, you can't be sitting around thinking, oh, I can't wait, you know, until I have a swimming pool or something. You know, you can't have that. Uh, if you're going to take risk, you have to be willing to come out on the low end, you know, of the risk possibilities as opposed to the, the you know, the richer end. And um, so I understand no one ever taking the risk. But my, you know, I can't give advice because my whole, my whole resume is an accident. I made one deliberate choice, which is to write that first book. And that book was a very significant piece of Senator Moynihan's interest in me and wanting to bring me into his campaign. And I didn't want to go into that campaign. And I go into that campaign, you know, reluctantly. And then I go into the Senate somewhat reluctantly. And then I love it, really love it. And I stayed there much longer than I expected to. Uh, but it was all an accident. It was a pure accident that these things happened. And, you know, Senator Moynihan was this incredibly unorthodox guy. There's no other senator who would have hired me into a re-election campaign. There's no other senator who would have wanted me working for him in the Senate, none. So what are the odds there? I mean, the odds on that are absurd, you know, that I end up uh, in that space. It's so luck, so much luck. And then, you know, my TV writing career really gets supercharged because NBC, luckily for me, decides to make a show unlike anything they've ever done before, which is a bunch of guys in neckties and women in business clothing standing around an office, mildly disagreeing, and then, you know, roll the credits. There's no baby dying in the emergency room. There's no one facing the death penalty in the courtroom. You know, there's no car chases, no guns, no nothing. And we're calling it the West Wing, and no one knows what that means. And that show manages to get on NBC and so they need me that's all luck and then that show gets a giant audience which is also luck because you know the luck is if that show had premiered on ABC it would have been killed in about five weeks because it would have been going against ER okay and it would have been going against the powerhouse shows of NBC would have crushed it instead all the powerhouse shows of NBC were running promos for it, you know, to get a bigger audience, right? So the string of luck in this kind of life is ever present and it's risky. And, you know, the most common kind of luck is bad luck. Good luck is rare. And so I, 
I, I think you know you you're going to do something like that because you simply can't imagine the alternative. I mean, I was just too much of a, and I lived in an era that was not as career oriented as now, and so I was not alone being a couple of years out of college and still being a parking attendant. I mean, my job after graduating from Harvard College for several years was parking cars uh, because that was my job when I was a college student. Now, I don't think you find any graduates of Harvard College parking cars, you know, two or three years out. They're all so, you know, career oriented. Um, and I, you know, uh, so, so, you know, you can either stomach the level of risk that, that a risky life involves or you can't. And I don't recommend anyone forcing it on themselves. It's, uh, you know, if you really want to live securely and safely and make sure you can, you know, provide for family and, you know, pay tuitions if necessary and all of that, um, risk, if that's really important to you and you can see that life, you know, uh, outline for yourself, then I would say avoid risk. Just stay away from risk because it it would it is not compatible with that. Even I think for all of your fans, I am sure that they are thrilled that you chose the risk path. Yeah. And um, I know that they will get to know you better through this uh, episode. And it's it. I don't know how they could like you any more than they already do, but. They will know you better. And sure. we're so grateful that you took the time to talk to us. Yeah, for sure. Well, and thank you for making uh, the last word smarter whenever you grace us with your presence. All right. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. This was really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of Intergenerational Dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.